0: Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Mark chapter 14, we're going to take up Jesus' agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. The context is this, Jesus has just finished the Lord's Supper, he has done some talking with the disciples on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, which was east of Jerusalem. You had to go out of Jerusalem down into the Kidron Valley, across the Brook Kidron, up on the other side of the brook, up to the western Slope of the Mount of Olives. That's where the Garden of Gethsemane was, and they had to walk there. A lot of stuff happened on that trip as they walked. They had sung a hymn probably at the Passover meal. It's not exactly clear because of where Mark places that singing of the hymn. He has it at verse 26, whereas the Garden of Gethsemane passage starts at verse 32. But Robertson says he sung it at the. They sung it at the Last Supper, so that's where we're going to take it. Now, according to Robertson's harmony, a lot of Stuff happened between the Last Supper in the Garden of Gethsemane. First of all, this is recorded in, all of these events are recorded in the Gospel of John. In John 14, we have the farewell discourse to the to the disciples in the upper room. This was after the Lord's Supper when Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled in my Father's house are many man- mansions, and I've gone to prepare a place for you. And then on the way to Gethsemane, as they walked out, John 15, Jesus talks about himself being the true vine, and you need to abide in Jesus. Every branch needs to abide in Jesus, and without without me, it is impossible to do anything. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And then in chapter 16, he talks about, I need to go leave you because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, to you. So you see this important stuff going on here before we get to the Garden of Gethsemane. And then, of course, possibly near the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prays his famous high priestly prayer in John 17 where he says, I have come to collect my sheep, and I pray for my sheep. There are three parallel versions of this story. There's one in Mark, here where we are in Mark 14. There's Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46, and there's Luke 22, 39 through 46. John mentions it briefly. The only extra detail that John mentions he says the disciples went over the brook Kidron. That means he was on the other side of Kidron where the Garden of Gethsemane was, a minor detail. So we're not going to deal with John. We're going to deal mainly with Mark, Matthew, and Luke. So let's read the whole passage in Mark, the whole 11 verses. Mark 14, 32 through 42. Then they came to a place named Gethsemane, and he told his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and horrified. Then he said to them, My soul is swallowed up in sorrow to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. Then he went a little farther, fell to the ground, and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will." Then he came and found them sleeping. Simon, are you sleeping? He asked Peter. Couldn't you stay awake one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once again, he went away and prayed, saying the same thing. And he came again and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. They did not know what to say to him. Then he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The time has come. Look, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's go. See, my betrayer is near. All right, we're going to go through Mark, Matthew, and Luke and pick up different details as we go through the passages. I'll say right now that Matthew and Mark are very close. Luke is actually fairly close, too. they all three of them are very close. Luke leaves out a couple of details and adds a couple of details, but basically the three passages are pretty close. Well, let's start with verse 40 in Mark 14. He finds them sleeping for the second time, Peter, James, and John, who he had left aside as he went alone by himself to pray by himself, and he asked them to pray for him, and they fall asleep on him. And he comes and he challenges them, and and Mark says, they did not know what to say to him. Why? Why did they not know what to say to Jesus? Well, could it be they were confused? Well, they got awakened in the middle of the night. Could it be that they were ashamed and didn't know how to excuse themselves? Maybe they were so sleepy they just couldn't wake up. Maybe they were stupefied with sleep. It had been a very long day, very long Passover day, and it was now roughly midnight or so in the middle of the night. Could be they were just so grieving so bad because they knew that Jesus was about to die. He had told them that his... His, God's associate would be struck down, quoting Zechariah, that the sheep would be scattered, and it was a bad time. They knew they were in trouble. When, when Jesus went into the garden with his disciples, of course, he separated out three of them, Peter, James, and John, and left the other eight. Judas, of course, is gone now, so the other eight he left at, at, a, at a farther's point. Peter and James and John came with him, then he left Peter, and James, and John and went even further, a stone's throw, Luke says, an extra detail. And so he's praying there in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, it says that that he was distressed and horrified. The Holman Christian Study Bible is horrified. Mark, uh, the King James, has greatly amazed, which to me is, uh, that's old English. It doesn't mean what it means today in modern English. Horrified is the translation of the Holman Christian Study Bible. He went through hell there in the Garden of Gethsemane. So now let's look at the Matthew passage and go through this in even greater detail, starting in Matthew 26, verse 36. First of all, we find out in Mark and Matthew that the place was named Gethsemane. What does Gethsemane mean? It means oil press, a place for squeezing oil for olives, and that's appropriate because this garden was at the foot of the Mount of Olives. This place in the Garden of Gethsemane Gethsemane was one of Jesus' favorite places according to the NIV study bible. The parallel passage in Luke twenty two in verse thirty nine says this. He went out and made his way as usual to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. John Verses eight chapter eighteen verse two says this Judas who betrayed him also knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. That's how Judas knew how to tip off the temple police where to go arrest Jesus because Jesus often went there. This shows that Jesus had a a usual prayer life. One of my commentators, I think it was John Gill, pointed out that Jesus probably went to the Mount of Olives every night during Passion Week. He would go minister in Jerusalem on Monday and Tuesday. And then when when his ministry was over, he would go pray at night before retiring, probably at the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So he went to his normal place to pray. He knew he had to pray because he was facing a horrible death by crucifixion coming up shortly. And as we'll see, it wasn't just the death, the torture, and the death that was so bad for him, but bearing the sins of the world, that's what really got him. That was what it, that was the real trial that he had to go through. And I don't mean to make light of death, and crucif- death by crucifixion, because every account you ever read of crucifixion, it is really, really bad. Real bad Peter took excuse me, Jesus took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. These were his three favorite disciples. They were often admitted on other occasions when the rest of the disciples were not admitted. for example, when Jairus' daughter, Jairus, the synagogue ruler's daughter, was raised from the dead mark five thirty seven he Jesus did not let anyone accompany him except Peter, James, and John. Matthew 17.1, this is the Mount of Transfiguration. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and his brother John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. So these three prominent apostles, of course, Peter ended up being one of the pillar apostles of the Church of Jerusalem. James was killed in Acts 12.1, one of the leaders of the Jewish church there, killed by Herod Antibas. And, of course, John wrote the Gospel of John, the three letters of John, and the book of Revelation. So they were a prominent apostles. and That just shows that... There's always leadership in a group, and Jesus was training his leaders. It wasn't that he was not being fair and equal with everybody. I really believe that the 21st century has got a surfeit of egalitarianism. Everybody's equal. Well, what happens to uh, exceptionalism? Peter, James, and John, despite their flaws, they were leaders, as, as time proved out, and Jesus, therefore, had more uh, more cl- closer dealings with them as he trained them. He was a human being dealing with human beings. And, of course, the leader, their leadership was flawed, as we know. The, the gospel is clear about James and John trying to call down fire on a village, trying to argue over who's big, big shot in the kingdom. And, of course, we all know about Peter denying Jesus three times. So their leadership was flawed. But nonetheless, Jesus, as was his prerogative, singled them out the other eight which should never and would never have said, well, that's just not fair, Jesus. You're not treating us like like everybody else. Why did he take them there? Well, John Gill says that all three would be witnesses and can tell of what happened, which is a very, very interesting point because if they hadn't have come along, Peter, James, and John, we wouldn't have known what happened there at in the Garden of Gethsemane, one of the most well-known occurrences in the history of mankind. As you know, in the Old Testament law, two or three witnesses were required to establish the truth of a legal matter, and here we have two or three witnesses to establish the truth of an historical matter. Jesus, as I said, was horrified began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. He had been sorrowful six days before, John Gill points out. I'm assuming Gill's chronology is right. I actually haven't checked it out, but I'm assuming it's right. He says in John 12, verse 27, Now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour. But that is why I came to this hour. So Jesus knew he, he had a difficult time, humanly speaking, facing what he had to face in that, uh, uh, at that crucifixion. He was human. He was obviously human as he suffered for us. The Greek word there for distress, he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed in verse 37 of Matthew. The word is, uh, the question is, why was he distressed? Well, the obvious reasons are because he was about to die and he was about to be tortured. On a cross, okay, well, that's good enough reason to be distressed. But interestingly enough, Adam Clark disagrees with this. He says, for Jesus be, to be distressed over his impending death would rob Jesus of his excellency and manhood for him to be afraid of this. Oh, really? You're less than a man if you're scared of getting nailed up on a cross and dying of thirst, lying out there in the hot sun with nails through your hands. You're sucking air, trying to keep from suffocating to death. You've got a spike driven through your feet, you getting a spear stuck stuck in your side to finish you off. Oh, and you would be a coward if you didn't fear this? I'd like to see Adam Clark do it. What normal person wouldn't be afraid of that? So I believe he was distressed over his impending crucifixion. Adam Clark, but then Adam Clark goes on to say, well, he knew in three days he was going to be raised again, so he didn't have anything to be worried about. Oh, really? Knowing that you're going to be raised again in three days, that's supposed to make crucifixion easy? Well, sometimes these... super-intelligent polymath commentators that know everything and sometimes can be quite stupid, in my humble opinion. Really, I'm serious. It's, It's amazing what people will say sometimes. But John Gill makes the point that what he really could have been distressed about, even more than dying, and I think he might be right about this, is the fact that Jesus was contemplating bearing the sins of the world. Here's a quote. Here's his quote. In great consternation and astonishment at the sight of all the sins of his people coming upon him, at the black storm of wrath that was gathering thick over him, at the sword of justice which was brandished against him, and at the curses of the righteous law, which, like so many thunderbolts of vengeance, were directed at him. Whoa. Gil has got some great rhetoric. And when you think about that, that's what Jesus was going through? That's pretty bad. I mean, how many times have you done something that felt like God was mad at you a little bit or angry with you? Or how many times before you got saved you just felt sick for all the sins you had done? Well, take that and multiply it by about a million, and that's what Jesus was facing. It's pretty bad. This word, distress, is a Greek word, ad, ademone, 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 but this word is used by the Greeks to denote the most extreme anguish which the soul can feel, excruciating anxiety and torture of spirit, according to one of my commentators. Jesus was going through a real bad time. In fact, in verse 38, he said, My soul is swallowed up in sorrow to the point of death. What does that mean, to the point of death? Well, Clark says it could be he was so grieved that death was about to arrive. In other words, he's so sorrowful because the point of death was was, was arriving. I don't think that's what it means. I think John Gill, uh, Gill has the answer here when Gill says that Jesus knew his sorrow would be unrelieved until he died. My soul is swallowed up in sorrow, and I'm going to be sorrowful all the way down to the last breath that I take, and until I die. Here's another quote from Gill. His soul was beset all around with the sins of his people. These took hold on him and encompassed him, which must in the most sensible manner affect his pure and spotless mind. The sorrows of death and hell surrounded him on every side, insomuch that the least degree of comfort was not let into him, nor was there any way open for it, so that his soul was overwhelmed with sorrow. His heart was ready to break. He was brought even as it were to the dust of death, nor would his sorrows leave him. He was persuaded until soul and body were separated from each other. So in that state of mind, he tells the Peter, James, and John in verse 38, Matthew 26, and also in, the, in Mark, remain here and stay awake with me. He told them to stay awake, to watch, in other words, to stay awake. Now Luke adds another detail, Luke 22 verse 40 says, when he told them, pray that you may not enter into temptation, stay awake and don't enter into temptation. Temptation to what? To deny Jesus. Now remember, Jesus had already told Peter that he was going to deny him three times. He'd already told the disciples that they were going to be scattered after the shepherd was struck, after the shepherd was smitten, they were going to be scattered, the sheep were going to be scattered. And so he knew they were facing a trial, too. And so he's saying, you, need, you guys need to be praying. And what I'm going through is bad, but you're going to go through some bad stuff, too. So you better get ready for it. Well, now, Jesus stayed awake and prayed. The disciples slept. I don't think we need to make notice of the obvious application point there. When you're facing trouble, you better, you better pray. Verse 39 of Matthew 26, going a little further, he fell face down and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will but as you will. Now, now, this is the first time that Jesus withdrew from Peter, James, and John to pray by himself. He probably wanted to be alone, totally alone with his father when he prayed. It says he fell face down. King James says on his face. Luke says he kneeled down. Of course, you can do both. You can kneel first, and then after you kneel, hit the ground, put his face in the ground. So that's how he was praying, face down on the ground. Mark says he calls him Abba Father, and I'll take a little excursus here to talk about that word Abba. Abba is a Syriac word, Aramaic, basically. And Adam Clark points out that this Syrian word, this Syriac word, intimates filial affection and respect, parental tenderness. And so many people are now going around saying that Abba can be translated Daddy. Now, I know having struggled with Chinese for so many years that words do not pass from one language to another without getting lost in translation. And so maybe the word has a little bit of connotations of that, and then people have just carried that further and further and further, that idea of filial affection, parental tenderness, and so people started saying, well, daddy. So I'll just say to my daddy, father, I'll just say to my daddy, please help me. You hear a lot of people say that, at least these modern-day mystic-type people saying that. And I say to myself, well, why don't we just carry it all the way and call him Pops? Hey, Pops! I mean, come on! It means father. Abba is the tra- father is the translation of Abba, and Abba is the translation of father. Now, when we say father, we don't mean to have an idea that of a of a father that's so distant, kind of like a Victorian father, you know, or like a Chinese father. They're so distant; they take care of the money, but they never talk to you personally about your problems. No, that's not what it means. There's tenderness and respect in that idea of father. But that's what Abba means. It's not pops. It's not dad. I mean, when people say that, I keep thinking, well, you know, you're getting so close to blasphemy, I'm just about to grow hives. I can't stand it. I remember reading a great article in Christianity Today by a scholar who proved to my mind, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that the word should never be translated daddy. And I I stand on that. I've lost the article, but I'm, I'm sure he's right. Now, Matthew says, let take this cup away from me. All three of them say, take this cup away from me. All three parallel passages. Mark adds, take this hour away from me. Mark 14:35. he began to pray that if it's possible, the hour might pass from him. It's the same idea. The cup is talking about the hour of his crucifixion be taken away from him. Now, cup can be one of three things. The metaphor. It could refer to the cup of poison that an executioner would give to a condemned criminal to capitally execute him. Pretty nasty. It could be a cup of medicine, bitter medicine, that a doctor gives you. Tastes nasty. Or it could be a cup that they gave criminals hanging on a cross full of wine mixed with myrrh, wine mixed with frankincense, whatever they mixed with it, myrrh and frankincense, to take away the pain of the crucifixion. However... The metaphor was being applied here it's obviously it's a horrible thing let me give you a quote from john gill quote, all his future sufferings of death which were at hand together with the bearing the sins of his people the enduring the curse of the law and the wrath of god all which were ingredients in and made up this dreadful bitter cup this cup of fury cursing and trembling called a cup either an allusion to the nauseous potions given by physicians to their patients or rather to the cup of poison given to malefactors the sooner to dispatch them, or to that of wine mingled with myrrh and frankincense to intoxicate them that they might not feel their pain. In another place, Gill says this, He had the wrath of God poured out upon him, and his prayer bespeaks him to be in a condition which neither, neither they nor any mortal creature were ever in. Think of this very famous verse in 2 Corinthians 5:21. He, God the Father, made the one Jesus who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Put that sin right on Jesus. It didn't make him a sinner, of course, but he laid the sin on his back to, so he could bear that sin, the sacrificial lamb of God on the cross, so that we wouldn't have to bear it. Here's another quote from Adam Clark about that cup. The word cup is frequently used in the sacred writings to point out sorrow, anguish, terror, death, It seems to be an allusion to a very ancient method of punishing criminals. A cup of poison was put into their hands, and they were obliged to drink it. Socrates was killed, thus being obliged by the magistrates of Athens to drink a cup of the juice of hemlock. Now there's another detail added by the parallel passages in Mark at this place. Jesus prays, Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. Now... Luke adds two verses which are missing in some early manuscripts. The NIV makes a notation of that. The Holman Christian Study Bible puts it in brackets. So this, there's some questionable manuscript authority here. But assuming it's in the original autograph, this is what the verse says. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him, verse 43 in Luke 22. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. Being in anguish, he prayed more fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, you hear many people say that, that Jesus was sweating so hard that blood popped through the capillaries in his forehead and mixed with the sweat, and so that it was bloody sweat that was falling to the ground in large drops. That is an option. The verse could be translated that way. Adam Clark denies that. If you look at the Holman Christian Study Bible's translation, it says this, "...being in anguish, he prayed more fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground." So it's an analogy, and the analogy might be with the big drops of blood that somebody, the wounded, might be sh- shedding, falling to the ground. So it doesn't directly say that his sweat was with, mixed with blood. However, it's an option. That's actually what happened. The NIV study Bible says that the condition is known as hematidrosis, hematidrosis, which is an actual mingling of blood and sweat that happens in cases of extreme anguish. Now, favoring this is Luke, who records this as a physician, and he would be interested in something like that, because that's an unusual medical situation. He's the only gospel writer who does record it, and he was a doctor. So, and it makes a great story if you're preaching a sermon. And whether whether that detail is accurate or not, it doesn't matter. The point is, is he was in horrible anguish. Horrible, horrible anguish. The NIV Study Bible summarizes this dread, this agony of spirit that jesus was experiencing causing him to plead with god to please take that cup away from him was mainly the fear or the dread of having to take mankind's sin on his shoulders that seems to be a common opinion even more than the death and the crucifixion and i i think that's true i have trouble saying it because the the death and the crucifixion was just so horrible what jesus went through but taking on the sins of the world that's even worse this, in other words, is off the radar scope of almost any human being. We can't imagine what Jesus went through. Can't even talk about it. Can't even describe it. Can't even come close to describing it. Verse 40, then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He asked Peter, so couldn't you stay awake with me one hour? This is the first return of Jesus to his sleeping disciples. And here in Matthew, he, he, put, he singles out Peter. He doesn't say Peter, James, and John. Matthew says he asked Peter, Why could you stay awake with me one hour? Now, why did Jesus pick on Peter? He could have asked James and John the same question. Why didn't you stay awake? But he picked on Peter. He singled out Peter. Probably because Peter had just boasted at the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper. He had just boasted that he would stand with Christ even to the point of death. He said, I go to prison with you. I'll die with you. I'll never deny you. And Jesus said, Before the cock crows, three times you're going to deny me. And so what Jesus is getting at here is he's he's basically saying, look, how can you stay you will stand with me until death if you can't even stay awake for only one hour? <laughs> Ooh. No wonder Peter went out and cried bitterly that third time when he denied Jesus. He's crying like a baby. Now, in Peter's defense and James and John's defense, it was actually quite reasonable that they had fallen asleep. I've I've often noticed this. Jesus was a coach that required a lot of his team, <laughs> boy, because they Peter and John had been up all Passover day, Thursday, preparing the Passover, buying the lamb, buying the s- spices, getting the lamb sacrificed at the temple, hiring the room out or, get, or getting the room uh, set up. And, all, and then they'd that, eaten that big meal. And, of course, it was a painful night because they had Jesus told them somebody was going to betray them. And now they'd eaten that big meal and now it was getting late on into the evening. It was the middle of the night. Yeah, I would have been asleep too. I'm sure I would have been. And also Luke 22, verse 45 adds an interesting detail. When he got up from prayer and came to the disciples, he found them sleeping exhausted from their grief. They were sleeping because they were sad. They knew that Jesus was going to die. And I don't know about you, but a lot of times when things really go bad, I sleep a lot. You know, I guess it's less time during the day that you have to face. We need to remember here, of course, that the disciples had been told by Jesus that they were going to be scattered. I think I've mentioned that. And he had been preparing them from way back at the end of his Galilean ministry. I'm going to go down to Jerusalem and get killed. So they, they finally, I guess they finally got it through their head. This is it. The gig is up. Matthew twenty six forty one. moving on. Stay awake and pray that, so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus must have known Peter was going to crack very soon. Peter had a willing spirit. He wanted to follow Jesus, but he couldn't carry it out in his flesh. How did Jesus know that? Well, maybe through his omniscience or maybe he just knew Peter. I don't know. And of course, the temptation, temptation is a trial. The temptation that Peter was about to face was, about to, was seeing Jesus arrested and him possibly getting arrested and killed himself. Matthew twenty six forty two again, a second time he went away and prayed, My father, this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Remember, Jesus left Peter, James, and John three times. This is the second time. He's, he he prays the same prayer. He wanted to get out of it. Now, we're going to look at this as an object lesson in prayer. If you've ever been, unfortunately, connected with the hyperfaith movement, the Copenhagenism You will remember them constantly saying, if you pray more than one time, you don't have any faith. Pray it once, believe it, then don't say it anymore, because you've already said it. You believe, you don't need to pray again. Well, Jesus prayed three times, my friends, and if Jesus can pray three times, I can pray three times. Not to mention, what about the importunate prayers? Have the faith people ever read those parables? Ask, 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 knock, 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 knock. Not to mention Paul, when he had the thorn in the flesh, probably somebody persecuting him or whatever, he asked three times that Jesus would remove it from him. There's nothing wrong with praying again. Now, the interesting thing is, we'll see here, after the third time that Jesus went went away and came back, he was perfectly at peace. But here, his soul is still troubled. And, And the point about that is, is you pray until you get peace. And then, then you can quit praying and rest in it. Matthew 26:43 through 44, and he came again and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. After leaving them, he went, again, went away again and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. And of course, the same thing was, Father, if it's your will, take this cup away from me. Now, after Jesus returns the third time to his sleeping disciples, verse 4, 46 in Matthew 26, verse 45. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the time is near. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let's go. See, my betrayer is near. Now this time Jesus is not doesn't rebuke them for being asleep. He says, No problem. Are you still sleeping and resting? Well, it's like a mild rebuke. It says in Mark, he says, Then he came a third time and said to them, This is Mark chapter 14, verse 41. Then he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. In other words, enough sleeping, enough resting. Time is over. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Now, Jesus seems very calm now. As I mentioned earlier, John Gill says this, He was now rid of his fears and free from those agonies and dreadful apprehensions of things he was but a little while ago possessed of. In other words, the prayer was answered. Not the prayer that the cup would pass, but he had peace. He got no for an answer but to receive peace is determined to do God's will and what a great sermon application that would be now some people say skeptics blasphemers like to say that Jesus committed suicide and that's sinful that is nonsense he did not commit suicide somebody has about to jump off a bridge he has a choice jump off the bridge or not what choice did Jesus had he was he was ar- not armed his disciples except for Peter were not armed they there was no way they could overcome the temple police that showed up he didn't commit suicide he did what you and I would have done. They surrendered. He, he surrendered. Now, of course, I'm looking at it from the human point of view. God divinely could have done it. He could have ordered a legion of angels to come rescue him. Of course, that wasn't in the in the plan. But however, we're looking at Jesus from a human aspect. He did not commit suicide. Now, Jesus said, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. See, my betrayer is near. Jesus don't know how he knew that Judas was near, but he knew Judas was going to betray him, and he figured it was just a matter of time before it was going to Judas was going to get there with his arresters, and he probably heard him coming, and he knew that Judas would probably be with him. So I think that's a natural human apprehension that he figured that out. Some people say it was divine, but at any rate, he knew that they were coming. The disciples must have known that it was Judas because Jesus had already told them at the Last Supper, the man who dips his hand into this wine, into the sauce with me, is the one who will betray me so they knew it was judas and they realized that trouble was coming now what does it mean i'm about to be betrayed into the hands of sinners could it just mean sinners that the jews who were arresting jesus were evil sinners well adam clark says that jesus was using the common jewish word for gentiles the gentiles called the the jews called the gentiles sinners all the time referring to the roman cohort that was stationed at the festival time for the defense of the temple and that the Jews had gotten the Romans to go along. Pont- uh, not Pontius Pilate. I'm sorry, uh, Caiaphas had gotten the Roman soldiers to go along to arrest Jesus. Probably saying, "Well, we don't want to have an uproar here now, would we? We want to have law and order." And so they got the Romans to go along. And I think Clark is right because just to say, "Oh, the one the, I'm being portrayed into the hands of sinners." Well, you know, people who shoplift are sinners. I mean, these are not sinners. These are monsters. He's a moral monster. Sinner seems too mild a word to me. So I think he's referred to Gentiles, not sinners. Ladies and gentlemen, that's it. We will see Jesus arrested in the next audio as we continue with Mark chapter 14. I hope you enjoyed this, this audio.